country has to make the monarchy fit for purpose for the 21st century and onwards. It's the first British coronation in 70 years. We look ahead to the future of the monarchy. For Saturday, May 6th, this is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Coming up, the latest from London, where Charles and Camilla are officially crowned king and queen. Plus, kids in America are having a rough time, and it's not just the pandemic. Starting in about 2010, we were seeing rising rates of depression and anxiety. Why kids are struggling and how we can help. And our friends at Pop Culture Happy Hour talk about the film that's giving new life to the Judy Bloom classic, Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. What a joy to see it have an adaptation that is true to the book and yet expands upon the book. First, the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Ukraine says it used a newly acquired U.S. Patriot missile battery to shoot down a Russian hypersonic weapon over Kyiv earlier this week. NPR's Scott Newman has more. In attacks on Ukraine in recent months, Russia has increasingly employed one of its latest high-tech missiles, the Kenzel or Dagger. Traveling at up to 10 times the speed of sound, the missile had proved nearly impossible to intercept. But Ukraine's air force, armed with U.S.-supplied Patriot missiles that arrived last month, says it destroyed a Kenzel during a Russian strike on Kyiv earlier this week. It's thought to be the first time Ukraine has managed to intercept a Russian hypersonic missile. In October, the U.S. agreed to supply Patriots to Ukraine to aid in defending its skies against the Kremlin's air and missile attacks. Scott Newman, NPR News. As the COVID health emergency in the U.S. comes to an end next week, the country's ability to remove migrants under the policy known as Title 42 is also ending. The head of the Department of Homeland Security spoke in the Rio Grande Valley about the immigration change, as Texas Public Radio's Pablo De La Rosa reports. DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas says the agency plans to focus on international cooperation to deal with an expected influx of migrants after May 11th. We are reaching the people where they are. It is our humanitarian responsibility to cut the smugglers out. DHS recently began working with the Department of Justice to extradite human smugglers directly from Central America, while Mexico agreed to take an unspecified number of deportees from the U.S. after the end of Title 42. I'm Pablo de la Rosa in McAllen. King Charles was crowned at Westminster Abbey in London today, the first coronation in 70 years. NPR's Lauren Freyer has more from the crowds outside. Thousands of well-wishers braved at times heavy rain to wave flags at the royals as they rolled by in a horse-drawn carriage. A lot of cheering when, when Charles turned up. Stephanie Burns watched from a big screen set up in London's Green Park. But not everyone was cheering. taxpayers for hundreds of years have been financing these palaces. Mary Rooks was one of thousands of protesters along the parade route. The royals scaled back this coronation, which takes place at a time of economic crisis and waning support for the monarchy. But it'll still cost taxpayers upwards of $125 million. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, London. The 149th running of the Kentucky Derby gets underway this evening. It's the first leg of the Triple Crown. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The company that provides school bus service in Framingham, Marlboro, and Westboro, and its drivers are talking again. The drivers are threatening to strike Monday. The company and the Teamsters resumed contract negotiations this afternoon after they were told they could lose their Framingham contract. The Framingham City Council this morning gave the school department permission to seek a new bus company for the next school year. The insurance industry is opposing legislative efforts to set rates for telehealth appointments as if they are in person. Laura Pellegrini is president of the Massachusetts Association of Health Plans. She says that if virtual appointments cost less than in-person visits, health providers should be reimbursed at different rates. Some plans have chosen to pay them at parity, to pay them like an in-person visit, and that's their choice. Um, And that's what I think, you know, in this market-based approach that we have is appropriate. Providers and payers should determine these rates at the contracting table. Supporters say reimbursement parity is critical to keeping telehealth available to patients who need it. Hampshire College in Amherst has announced its largest incoming class in five years. Alden reports it's a welcome relief for the struggling school. In 2019, Hampshire was in trouble. Facing financial challenges, it laid off staff, limited the number of students entering in the fall, and explored the possibility of a merger. The president at the time was replaced and a major fundraising campaign began. Hampshire President Ed Wingenbach says the college is in a much different place now. We're stable and moving in a really positive direction financially. And more importantly, we are a really exciting place for students to attend. And I think we see that in the dramatically growing interest. Wingenbach says the college has raised almost $40 million towards a $60 million fundraising goal. And 10 new faculty members are being hired for the fall. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. It's 76 degrees at 5.06. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Lyric Stage with Sister Act. And then there were nuns, a divine feel-good musical comedy through May 14th, lyricstage.com. Native Plant Trust, enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And the Rockefeller Foundation, making opportunity universal and sustainable for over 100 years. From NPR News, I'm Sarah McCammon. King Charles III was crowned today in a display of pomp and pageantry in London. God save the king! It was the United Kingdom's first coronation in 70 years, and a chance for the new king to put his stamp on the monarchy with a scaled-back, smaller ceremony than his mother's. But not everyone was won over. The parade route was lined with well-wishers, but also some protesters. NPR's Lauren Freyer watched it all unfold and sent us this report. King Charles and Queen Camilla rode to their coronation in a horse-drawn carriage, but a modern one with power windows, AC, and hydraulics to keep it from swaying. They processed into Westminster Abbey draped in velvet, fur-trimmed robes. They were anointed with holy oil from Jerusalem, and they were crowned according to a rite practiced here for more than a thousand years. There were some differences, though, a shorter parade route, a role for leaders of other faiths besides Christianity, and some contemporary music, including a coronation theme song.
composed by Andrew Lloyd Webber of Cats and Phantom of the Opera fame. First Lady Jill Biden was there, so were Lionel Richie and Katy Perry. Another famous American, Meghan the Duchess of Sussex, was not. Serving their flags and ponchos. Outside, tens of thousands of people braved at times heavy rain to witness the spectacle. Katy Francis and her six-year-old Benjamin traveled from Windsor outside London. I loved the, the crowning itself, the coronation itself. To watch the bejeweled purple velvet crown go on the king's head, she says... Something that sends shivers down your spine. You feel the weight of the responsibility going on to Charles's head, literally. The crown must be very heavy for him. Benjamin had a waterproof Union Jack hat on and ice cream all over his face. And then the gold carriage was amazing to see with my own eyes. <laughs> you saw something out of a fairy tale, wasn't it? <laughs> Those last two voices were Marion Peters and her mother Wendy from Morpeth in northeast England. They're royalists who somehow ended up in a crowd of protesters. <laughs> so that made it quite interesting because uh, they would start up now and then and we had to try and drown them out. <laughs> shouting, God save the king, or whatever. <laughs> there were no clashes, and the protesters were outnumbered. One of those chanting, not my king, was retired Dr. Philippa Burkett. She's upset this coronation is costing taxpayers around $125 million at a time of economic crisis. It's just expensive theatrics. We're suffering, you know, there's, there's food banks and people in real financial crisis. Neither protests nor rain disrupted the king's itinerary. Only the military flyover had to be scaled back. Fewer jets, more helicopters because of the bad weather. Political scientist Anand Menon says if Britons go home from this coronation feeling like they had fun or that it was worthwhile... That gives King Charles a springboard uh, and a wellspring of sort of good faith from the British people on which to build. But it's just a staging post. What we don't know is longer term what public opinion on the monarchy will do. Polls in recent months show it's been waning, especially among the youth. For now, though, one of those watching, Mary Warman, says after all of today's events, she can only imagine what the king is thinking tonight. I think he will be mightily relieved. It's all over. <laughs> Lauren Freyer, NPR News, London. With the coronation behind us, we'd like to spend some time thinking about what we can expect from King Charles as sovereign and what the future of the monarchy may look like with him at the helm. So we called Pauline McLaren. She's a professor at the University of London and co-author of the book Royal Fever, The British Monarchy in Consumer Culture. Professor, welcome to All Things Considered. Hello. Thank you very much for having me, Sarah. This is the first time in 70 years, of course, that the British people have witnessed a coronation. So just to start us off, I mean, what's your reaction to the ceremony and what is the mood like there? Well, uh, there is a great mood of festivity, uh, needless to say, because this goes with three days of holiday, really. So people are certainly celebrating. There were crowds in the mall to witness the procession to the abbey for the coronation. And there's lots of street parties that will be happening either later today or tomorrow. May I ask, are you celebrating in some specific way? <laughs> tomorrow, I hope to be attending a street party um, uh, in my neighborhood. Street parties are a great chance for people to get together. And we've already um, heard lots of people expressing not necessarily even their support for the monarchy, but using the coronation as an excuse 
for a celebration with friends and family and neighbors. Of course, King Charles has been the sovereign since September after the death of his mother. Over the last nine months, what do you think we've learned about him as king and what can we expect for the monarchy moving forward? I think what we've learned about him so far as king is that he is proving to be more approachable and humble and likable overall than I think was generally expected by the public. I think he's been at pains to show that he really wants to serve the people. He wants to be seen as a man of the people, that has been said. He's done several impromptu walkabouts. We saw the most recent one actually yesterday after a reception for foreign dignitaries that were coming over for the coronation. On his way back in the official limousine, the cars were stopped and he got out and shook hands with the crowds. So I think that gives a flavour of uh, what he's like and how he wants to be seen. Well, I do wonder about King Charles' relationship with the Commonwealth as a whole. He's a sovereign of the Commonwealth, a political association made up of 56 extremely diverse nations. And there's some very ugly history there, of course, with colonization. After the passing of Queen Elizabeth, there were rumblings that some countries may leave the Commonwealth. Is this a concern for King Charles and, and how might he navigate it? I mean, it's obviously not Charles that will be navigating it himself. It will be the advisors and the government position on what role can he play and what role can Britain play in the Commonwealth without necessarily being um, head of state of various countries. They already have roles. You know, there are various countries in the Commonwealth of which he is not head of state. So this can be done, but they're going to have to rethink Britain's role with the Commonwealth because for sure there are several countries, not least Canada, Australia and the Caribbean countries, who are are likely to abandon the idea of the British monarchy as their heads of state. Now, in recent years, of course, the royal family itself has come under fire. There have been some extremely serious issues. I'm thinking of Prince Andrew being accused of having sex with a minor, accusations of racism in the family from Prince Harry and Meghan Markle, as well as the public outcry over just the family's cost to the taxpayers. Do we have a sense of how King Charles plans to try to keep support for the monarchy you know, while dealing with these kinds of serious issues? Well, I think we already see him working to overcome some of these issues. Now, the uh, Prince Andrew scandal, we know he has been dealing very um, strictly with Andrew in um, keeping him away from official roles. With the racism claim, I should point out that Harry and Meghan have since said they did not call the, the, um, the family racist. There may be unconscious bias. I think they have been differentiating. In the opera interview, it was interpreted that what they were saying was that the family was racist. But Harry, in a fairly recent interview, actually said the family was not racist. But given that, um, there is no doubt that the royal family does have to prove, and Charles, obviously, as its head, has to prove that the family is embracing of diversity. And I think he will try and do that. He, he always has been very keen 
to embrace other faiths and other um, viewpoints and other cultures, in fact. And we saw today in the coronation that he had the gospel choir. That was a new departure for the coronation. So I think he will do more of this and try and overcome the problems associated with that in those ways by uh, particularly sponsoring good causes that reflect his quest for uh, more diversity and inclusion. But there's no doubt it will be quite a difficult task. And finally, how important will King Charles work as king for however long that time may last be for setting the tone for what his son, Prince William, will walk into when he very likely someday inherits the throne? I think it will be very important because really Charles has to pave the way for William to eventually uh, inherit the crown. In other words, Charles really has to make the uh, the monarchy fit for purpose for the 21st century and onwards. And I do think that is what he is indicating he intends to do. There are definitely areas that we have discussed, in fact, um, already in this interview. But he wants to change and he, he realises that the institution needs to get those young people that are crucial, of course, to the future of the monarchy. So, yes, I think what Charles will do, and obviously he'll be doing this with um, not only Camilla at his side, but William and Kate at his side, and they will be essential in helping him develop ways, I think, to ensure the future of the monarchy. That's Professor Pauline McLaren speaking to me from London. Professor, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Zoo What Makes You Happy. Discover incredible wildlife and learn about nature at Boston's Franklin Park Zoo and Stone Zoo in Stoneham. ZooNewEngland.org. And Merrimack Repertory Theater with How High the Moon, the music of Ella Fitzgerald, a concert tribute to the First Lady of Song through May 21st. Tickets at MRT.org. WBUR occasionally offers you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. WBUR supporters include Russell's Garden Center, a shopping experience with annuals, perennials, organic fertilizers, unique gifts, toys, and more. A spring tradition for 146 years, Route 20 Wayland, and BU School of Social Work, top-ranked part-time MSW programs in Bedford, Fall River, Worcester, and Cape Cod, bu.edu ssw. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Sudan's rival military forces are meeting today to discuss a possible ceasefire. The talks were organized by the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. It's the first face-to-face meeting since fighting broke out three weeks ago.
Sweden is protesting the execution of a Swedish-Iranian dissident in Iran today. Tehran claims the man led an Arab separatist group responsible for an attack on a military parade in 2018 that killed 25 people. And King Charles and his wife Camilla were crowned king and queen at Westminster Abbey in London today. Charles's sons, Princes William and Harry, both attended. Outside the Abbey, hundreds of thousands of spectators, including protesters, gathered with thousands of troops. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Plymouth Gin Distillery. Plymouth Gin is imported from England's southwest coast, distilled using a blend of seven botanicals, including juniper berry, coriander seed, and citrus peel. Plymouth Gin, since 1793. And from Progressive Insurance, with Snapshot, which monitors safe driving habits to determine a personalized rate. At Progressive.com, not available in California and North Carolina, or from all agents. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. Judy Bloom's 1970 novel, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, tells the story of a preteen girl who moves to New Jersey with her family, makes new friends, and awaits the arrival of her period. It was a staple for many childhood readers, including my co-host Mary Louise Kelly. Recently, she spoke with Judy Bloom about the many letters Bloom has received from fans and readers over the years. Well, Judy, I did not write you a letter. If I had, <laughs> among other things, I might have complained that the bosom increasing exercise that Margaret does <laughs> fervently does not work because I tried. My friends and don't I tried. and don't I know it? And when I talk to kids, I tell them it doesn't work. It doesn't matter. And one day, when you're as old as I am, you might even be glad. <laughs> <laughs> We should, we should, for people who don't know what we're talking about, would you just say that what we're talking about here? We're talking about I must, I must, I must increase my bust with the proper accompanying arm movements. Like chicken wings flapping as we're, yeah. yeah. Writing honestly for adolescent readers about puberty and sex is not so unusual in 2023. But at that time, in the 1970s, it was revolutionary. And it's a story that still resonates with audiences today. A movie adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret is out now and getting some rave reviews. Earlier this week, the NPR podcast Pop Culture Happy Hour focused on the movie. Here are co-hosts Stephen Thompson and Linda Holmes speaking with NPR senior editor Barry Hardiman and Monica Castillo, senior film programmer at the Jacob Burns Film Center. Monica Castillo, I'm going to start with you. What did you think of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret? So I'm part of this in between generation where we weren't allowed to read it. Judy Bloom was kind of banned from my library growing up in Florida. So this was one of my first real experiences of getting to see any of her stories. And I was so charmed. It is so darling. The cast is so impressive. And the story is still painfully relevant and relatable, even though it takes place in the 1970s. I 
loved it. And I'm so glad that it's on the big screen for a whole new generation to discover. Nice. How about you, Barry? I am part of the segment of the population that owns my copy still of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. And so I went in with very high expectations and prepared to be disappointed. And boy, was I surprised because I absolutely loved this film. It did a beautiful job at correcting a couple of things in the book that could stand to be corrected. Um, It actually softened out some of the edges. The children in this film were masterful. There was not one child actor on the screen. It was all children. Rachel McAdams is so warm and lovely. I wanted her to be my mom. And Kathy Bates steals (laughs) every scene that she's in. She just runs away with it. Again, this little girl playing Margaret is just stunning. What she's doing with her eyebrows and her shoulders is encompassing an entire world of sixth grade that um, I have a sixth grader. I see sixth grade girls and boys a lot. This was the most authentic thing I have ever seen. Wow. All right. How about you, Linda? Yeah, I'm afraid I have to just keep the train rolling. I <laughs> I also really loved this. I was somebody who read Margaret when I was young. It was already kind of an established classic book by the time I read it. What I really liked about the film is, just as Barry said, I think it maintains the integrity of the book, but also kind of adds to the book in some interesting ways. The building out of the character of Margaret's mother, Mm -hmm. played again by Rachel McAdams, who's so good, I think does such a lovely job of explaining that in 1970, adult women were also in this position of, you know, thinking about who they wanted to be and how they wanted to fit into the world. And I think... Creating that parallel allows for some absolutely stunning scenes between uh, Abby Ryder Fortson playing Margaret and Rachel McAdams. There's a scene late in the film where they're on the couch together that I just think is such a Mm -hmm. there's so little dialogue. They trust those actors so much Mm. to just be in that moment. And it is it felt so genuine to me as a moment of bonding between Margaret and her mother. The other thing I would say is I'm so glad that they set it in 1970. Oh, me too. Because (laughs) I think there's always a risk of trying to consider a story like this universal. And it's very important to treat it as a story that isn't universal. It's broadly relatable in certain ways. But this is one story of one girl Mm -hmm. in one place in one neighborhood. And I think leaving it in its moment rather than being like Margaret with a smartphone, Margaret with access to the Internet, keeps the focus on the fact that this is what it looked like for one kid, you know, in this kind of family. And I think doing that preserves, in a lot of ways, the specificity of the story in a way that is more genuine than if they had tried to make it like everyone everywhere can understand this experience because, Mm -hmm. you know, kids everywhere wait for their periods and worry about their bodies. Like, right. But this is one girl and one girl's story. Yeah, I I also loved this movie. And I'm so glad I loved this movie because Mm. if I didn't, I would suddenly be the guy who's coming in being like, well, let me tell you, ladies, (laughs) 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 why why this story of a girl getting her period is wrong, wrong, wrong. Yeah, but you've raised a teenage daughter. I sure have. Mm -hmm. I sure have. And I also, I loved this book as a kid and I related to this book as a kid. I uh, obviously, from a different perspective, perspective, but I was a kid who was raised uh, without religion. 
and kind of went through some of this process of wondering kind of where I fit into the spiritual world. I did not think about it as deeply as Margaret does uh, and did not address it as, th as thoughtfully as, as she does. But I did, I totally agree with everything all of you have said. I, I think, Linda, what you were saying about that great specificity creates a universal story uh, really, really comes through here. I love how small this story is, how the, how the stakes are really, really contained. And yet it is as big as any coming of age story. And I think that's really beautiful. I loved what Barry said about Abby Ryder Fortson's performance here and how much work she's doing with her shoulders. It really reminded me of how much I loved the movie Eighth Grade, mm. which is kind of a similar kind of storytelling. Made me think about how Eighth Grade really has a debt to Judy Bloom in ways that I guess I hadn't really <laughs> thought about before. I loved this film. I guess my next question is kind of, how and why Judy Bloom's stories haven't been translated into movies more often. I mean, it's sort of shocking, isn't it, that this book that came out 50 years ago is only getting its first screen adaptation now? I think that's something that's somewhat covered in the new documentary, Judy Bloom Forever. And it does talk a little bit about that. I think she was protective of Margaret and she didn't want, mm -hmm. you know, multiple TV adaptations. There were previous adaptations here and there over the years of different books. I think Forever had one. I think Tiger Eyes had one. Tiger maybe. Eyes oh, had one. I yeah. love Tiger Eyes. Fudge had a TV show. Oh, Fudge. That was the one. But yeah, I get the sense that this one, which was, I think, one of her first breakout, if not her first breakout, she wanted to hold on a little bit longer. And then now there seems like a little Judy Bloom revival. And, and it mm -hmm. especially kind of stands out to me because in the documentary, she also talks about like the book censorship and how that's come back around. And especially, you know, someone who did grow up in Florida and wasn't allowed to read her books because the school librarian deemed it too adult for us. Mm. That is continuing that thing that she's been fighting for decades now. And that's kind of interesting that other forms of media are kind of combating that in a way between the documentary and between this uh, movie adaptation makes it more accessible for people. You know, I also think, you know, all of that is true, but we also have really focused on the kinds of coming of age stories that are more dangerous than this one. Do you know what I mean? Like the ones where there maybe isn't a loving family. And those are, by the way, important adaptations as well. But I think that would often, you know, I'm thinking of the movie um, 13, you know, with Evan Rachel Wood. And there's a kind of like, you don't know how bad it is film that kind of rose to the forefront. And in some ways, it sort of squeezed out what one hopes is the ideal, really, experience for young girls. But it also, I think some of it is that, you know, not much happens in this film. I mean, one thing, like you look at the plot architecture, not much happens. You know, spoiler alert, she does, you know, get her period. Um, but, you know, it's a series of of sort of smaller stories about relationships with God, relationships with your family, relationships with your friends. And apart from the Babysitter's Club, which, by the way, this has a lot in common with the adaptation of the Babysitter's Club on television, which was canceled for, I, I'll never get over it. But, you know, I, I think, again, like, this is a small story. And, you know, there's still so much sort of hyperventilating and in some ways with good reason about how dangerous it is to be a kid. There's a lot more warning than there is than celebrating. And this is a celebrator, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I also think that one thing about this film is that Abby Ryder Fortson just turned 15. So she was 14 when they filmed this, which is much closer to an actual turning 12 year old. Mm. 
than Hollywood will often give you. Yeah. I think one thing that has happened is there has been more interest when you're making coming of age stories. There has been more interest in a little bit later teenagers, mm -hmm. like the Stranger Things stuff, but also like Whip It and, you know, some of the really wonderful stuff about growing up has been older mm -hmm. on the older side. I think about something like it's not a film a lot of people talk about, but I think about something like Adventureland, which mm. uh, Jesse Eisenberg and, and Kristen Stewart film. were in, which is, by the way, a terrific movie. It was just it was kind of sold as a super bad movie and it's not yeah. a super bad movie. Mm -hmm. It's a really wonderful, interesting coming of age movie. But again, yeah. older teenagers. And I think right. one thing about this is how do you tell the story of girls who, when you look at them, they are really young. How do you kind of tell that story in a way that has enough appeal to like not just little kids? And I think Hollywood is not necessarily great at making those those real middle gradey kinds of adaptations. I think yeah. about stuff like Everything Sucks, which was a show on on Netflix oh, yeah. that we loved. It's tricky to make those kind of in-between adaptations. And I think when you combine that with Judy Bloom's, uh, as Monica was mentioning, protectiveness of Margaret, I think that may be why you didn't see it before now. But but what a joy, I think, to see it have an adaptation that is, again, true to the book and yet expands upon the book. Yeah. You know, it, Linda mentioned the the that there aren't necessarily a ton of movies and TV shows that talk about this particular age. And I, I imagine part of that just comes from the challenges in casting. Mm -hmm. You know, anytime you're trying to cast somebody who is on the verge of something, you run the risk of the actor crossing that verge mm -hmm. in the time that it takes to develop and, and shoot a movie. And I, I think they did such a beautiful job in, with the casting of this film. I did want to ask you guys one of the questions that I kind of had going into this movie, which was, who is it for? Is this movie for kids of this age? Is this an early exercise in nostalgia, you know, like where teenagers would feel mm. nostalgia for the time they were this age? Is this for people like several of us who grew up reading these books? Whom do you feel should be most excited about this film? I'm going to start with you, Monica. Oh, boy. I did want to give a quick shout out, by the way, to the Gordita Chronicles, because I think it also captures this time. Oh, oh great right. Grab. And just that yes. sense of all the changes that are happening and, and that weird in-between spot in people's lives. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of the audience, my goodness, as someone who didn't have nostalgia for these stories and I immediately, you know, walked out of the screening beaming, um, I think it is so accessible for multiple people. And I love to hear that, you know, folks are going in groups and people are taking different generations. I think it has the capability of connecting with a lot of different groups. All right. So we have given people a recommendation for this film. See this film. We've given people a recommendation for Eighth Grade. Yes. Babysitter's Club. Gordita Chronicles, uh, Wonder Years, we've set you on a path <laughs> full of rich recommendations. Also, bring on the Judy Bloom cinematic universe. Oh, oh, yes. Please do. I joked with Linda after this was over, I wanted a post-credit sequence uh, kind of setting up forever. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes, a stinger. <laughs> yeah. Yes. I love it. I, You know, I actually, one thing that was so darling is, you know, Judy Bloom is actually in this film. She walks by. Linda and I both pointed. She yeah, and she, yeah. like, she, she makes eye contact with the camera in this way that kind of made me think, like it had a Marvel quality to it where she almost breaks the fourth wall where I was like, oh, we are going to get more. She's the Stan Lee of the JBCU. <laughs> yeah. 
Stephen Thompson and Linda Holmes are co-hosts of our Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast. They were speaking with NPR senior editor Barry Hardiman and film critic Monica Castillo about the new movie adaptation of Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret. This is NPR News. Saying goodbye to a loved one can be tough, especially if you're parting ways for good. But grief counselor and patient advocate Isabel Stenzel Burns says the art of saying goodbye can and should be learned and practiced. It's knowledge she gained from a lot of personal experience. Life Kit's Andy Tegel has more. Isabel Stenzel Burns was born with cystic fibrosis, a progressive illness that damages the lungs and other organs. Her identical twin sister, Annabelle, was born with the same condition. She was my sidekick, my soulmate, my best friend, sometimes my arch enemy, just because that's what sisters are. And we shared a life that was very unique because of our genetic illness. The pair were in and out of hospitals constantly and faced a lot of pain and struggle. They, of course, were afraid of death. But we also shared a joint passion for life, knowing that our time could be limited. We um, knew from an early age that one of us would die first, and we actually practiced that. In 2013, Annabelle died of cancer. The finality and the complete separation of someone as close as my twin was, was very difficult. But all the time they'd spent preparing for that final goodbye helped Burns better manage her grief. I pursued things that uh, made me feel close to her. I also strengthened my relationships with friends and family and, of course, my spouse. And that really helped me kind of dig myself out of the hole of grief. Today, Burns is a grief counselor and patient advocate who uses her own experience to help others work through the pain of loss. It's a difficult process, she says, but it can also offer a lot of beauty. The other side of the coin of saying goodbye is how to love and love stronger and harder, um, knowing that a goodbye can come at some point in time. If you're lucky enough to get to prepare a farewell, Byrne says there is an art to a thoughtful goodbye. Start by recognizing the particular role that person has had in your life. We all have intersections in our lives where we spend time, you know, really good time, really valuable time with people and to um, articulate the, uh, the value and the importance of that intersection can be really meaningful. Aim to be as open and specific as possible. Thank you for impacting me. Thank you for teaching me. Thank you for being part of this journey at this company or during this time of my life. Of course, that kind of vulnerability isn't always easy. Maybe you're big on the Irish exit or being overly casual in your partings to avoid the awkwardness of intimate conversation. But doing it anyway is what helps us grow as human beings. Sometimes writing a letter can be easier. A text or expressing oneself in a written form can be easier. If you don't have the luxury of getting to say goodbye face-to-face or in real time or at all, Byrne says you could and should still partake in your own rituals to acknowledge your grief. And it might be something, you know, reflective and solitary, sitting at the beach, talking out loud, um, message in a bottle, whatever it is. Finally, Byrne says, no matter where you are in your grief, believe that you can weather the storm. Trust that we will have the confidence to cope with whatever comes our way and to, you know, have that faith in oneself and one's path in life is really important. 
For NPR's Life Kit, I'm Andy Tegel. For more tips and advice from LifeKit, visit npr.org slash LifeKit. This is NPR. I'm Susan Levy. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 6 on It's Been a Minute, All Things, The Met Gala. And whether or not Michael Jackson can be canceled, It's Been a Minute starts at 6. Stay with us. 75 degrees sunny in Boston at 539. Clear skies tonight, sun again tomorrow for most of the day. Then increasing clouds. Right now it's 539. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Don't keep your distance from the beloved Tony Award-winning musical about the life of Argentina's Eva Perón. Starts May 17th, amrep.org. Native Plant Trust. Enjoy 21 species of trillium in bloom, plus online programs May 8th to 14th at Garden in the Woods in Framingham. Information at nativeplanttrust.org. And Soaring Hawk Meditation Center, celebrating the present moment with a new exhibit on mindfulness. Located in Littleton, Mass., more at soaringhawkcenter.com. Ukrainian officials issued air raid alerts for most of the eastern part of the country today. This as the country claims it used a newly acquired U.S. Patriot missile battery to shoot down a Russian hypersonic weapon over Kyiv this week. British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak and his Canadian counterpart, Justin Trudeau, agreed to use momentum from Britain, joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership to further their own bilateral trade talks. In a meeting on the sidelines of King Charles's coordination today, Trudeau and Sunak also talked about how to deepen collaboration on defense and security technology. And the Westminster Kennel Club Dog Show got underway in New York today with some 3,000 contestants. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Bank of America offering access to resources and digital tools designed to help local to global companies make moves for their businesses. Learn more at bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness. And from Indeed, a hiring platform designed to streamline the hiring process. Indeed works to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates in one place. More at indeed.com slash NPR. This is NPR. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Sarah McCammon. If you're a parent or a caregiver or someone with kids in your life, you've probably been hearing some concerning news about the state of young people today. And a warning for our listeners, this conversation includes a discussion of serious mental health issues. The U.S. Surgeon General has called it an urgent public health crisis, a devastating decline in the mental health of kids across the country. Kids and adolescents are struggling with depression and anxiety. According to the CDC, the rates of suicide, self-harm, anxiety, and depression are up among adolescents. With their schoolwork. Report cards are in and they show student test scores drop to alarmingly low levels. With social connections. Tonight's Health Watch. When it comes to socializing, many children are having a hard time. 
and with loneliness. A new advisory out this week from the U.S. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy has deemed loneliness a public health challenge that needs immediate attention. And it may surprise some to learn that loneliness is a big problem with young people. He spoke with NPR. It turns out that one in two adults report measurable levels of loneliness. And the group that's actually most lonely in our population are actually young people, despite how connected they may be by technology. And I'm worried about this from a public health perspective because it turns out that being socially disconnected has real consequences for our health. It increases our risk of depression, anxiety, and suicide, but it also increases the risk of cardiovascular disease, of dementia, stroke, and premature death. Study after study has raised alarms about the many ways kids have been affected by the COVID-19 pandemic, from loneliness to depression and anxiety to faltering grades. And those who track the well-being of young people say problems were emerging long before the pandemic. We've known for a while now that the kids are not all right. The information is troubling, and lately there's been a lot of information. In a recent episode of our podcast, Consider This, we spoke to an expert about why it is an especially difficult time to be a kid right now. Lisa Damore is a psychologist and the author of the book, The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. We asked her to help us understand the big picture, and she started on a positive note. What I can tell you is that a lot of kids are functioning really well. They look like teenagers before the pandemic. They are thriving. They are living their lives in healthy and forward-looking ways. We are also seeing teenagers who are still suffering as a result of the pandemic or suffering as a result of things subsequent to the pandemic or they were struggling before the pandemic and the pandemic made it worse. The other thing we are seeing now is a much higher rate of teenagers who don't go to school on a regular basis. Um, Across the board, we are hearing from schools that, you know, they call it a lot of different things, truancy or school absenteeism or school avoidance, that those rates are higher than anyone remembers historically. And do researchers, do you think that that is a pandemic effect or is there something more going on? I think our sense is that's a result of the pandemic, that one of the things we know to be true is that avoidance feeds anxiety and kids are out of school for a long time. And so a lot of them became anxious about returning to school. And the longer you steer clear of something that makes you fearful, the more frightening that thing becomes. And then certainly with school, when kids don't go routinely, they fall out of the loop socially, they fall out of the loop academically, and it makes it that much harder to go back to school. And you said initially some kids are doing okay. Some seem almost like the pandemic never happened. Others are struggling more. I mean, what makes the difference? Who's the most affected by all this? Well, when we look at the data, we do know, unsurprisingly but very upsettingly, that teenagers who were suffering or marginalized prior to the pandemic definitely bore the brunt of the negative emotional impact of the pandemic. So minoritized groups, young people who were already having emotional difficulties, were not in any way helped by the pandemic. And in fact, we seem to think quite a bit more harmed by the pandemic. In terms of the young people we see who seem to be on normal developmental trajectories, thriving, you know, they had some combination of maybe good luck in terms of what their schools could provide, you know, good fortune in terms of the kind of supports that they were, you know, able to enjoy during the pandemic. Um, They may be, you know, kids who enjoyed quite a bit of privilege that protected them from the worst of the pandemic. 
but we're seeing it all. And, and I think it's important that we get used to the idea that this is going to be a complex story, that some kids continue to suffer quite a bit and other kids are thriving. And in terms of really trying to understand what's going on, you know, one thing that stuck out to me is we're seeing these declines across several measures of well-being. We're talking about mental health, social connections, also school performance. Are there connections here between these different data points? I mean, is academic decline related to mental health and vice versa? We can definitely see those two traveling together. You know, that part of what helps kids to feel good is feeling like they're succeeding. And so then if they're not succeeding, they're going to feel worse. And then, of course, the worse kids feel, the less likely they are to perform well academically or to feel like they have the energy that they need to do the kind of schoolwork they want to do. So it's not altogether surprising that we're going to see all of these things impacted at once. It's also the fact that there can be other factors that impact those same measures. So for example, sleep. Teenagers don't sleep nearly as much as they need to. Um, Teenagers generally require about nine hours of sleep a night. Very few are getting that. And reduced sleep time is unsurprisingly associated with worsened mental health, worsened academic performance. So we have to be really open-minded when we're looking for causal explanations and open to the idea that there are things that we can do that really do help teenagers. And certainly, whatever else is going on, protecting their sleep and making sure they're getting enough will almost always help, and it certainly never hurts. When you talk about teens not getting enough sleep, you know, I'm a mom. I'm thinking about my kids on their phones, that constant battle for so many parents. Is that the reason or is something else happening there? I think for a lot of kids, that's a reason. Um, And I think that's one of the more negotiable things we can, you know, use here to impact how much sleep kids are getting is making sure that technology is not interfering with their sleep. Um, But there are some kids who aren't sleeping enough because they have incredibly heavy academic demands that take up a lot of time. And there are some kids who aren't sleeping enough because they're working two jobs to try to support their family while also trying to go to school. So sleep um, is an interesting indicator because there's so many different things that can inform it. But it's also, I always think, a very good place to start, you know, to look at the question of what is interfering with a young person's sleep and then to look at what can be done to change that. You talk to a lot of children for your work. What kinds of things are they saying about what they're feeling right now? You know, you hear a wide range of things. I will tell you something that is coming up more and more in my conversations is, you know, concerns about gun violence. Kids talking about it, parents asking my advice about how to help their young person who's feeling very anxious about their safety in school settings or, you know, out in public and their worries about guns. So we know that these things weigh heavily on teenagers' minds. Climate change weighs heavily on their minds. So there's big social factors that kids are thinking about. Um, They are very aware of political polarization, and they are very aware of very, you know, fraught discourse that goes on around them. And yet also, and this is why teenagers are so wonderful, they're worried about how they're going to make friends in college and, you know, if they're going to be able to find a date to the dance, you know, the same things that have always made adolescence complex, those are there too, alongside bigger, very powerful, and often negative factors that surround our teenagers. Hmm. You know, we heard from Dr. Vivek Murthy, and a lot of people might be surprised when he talks about how even though teens seem very connected online, there is a big problem with teen loneliness, a lot of those concerns you just mentioned about making friends. Social media is often kind of a boogeyman when it comes to what's harming kids these days. But 
Where do you fall on that? What's behind the the loneliness that kids are feeling? Well, social media may be a factor. And one of the things that we are getting a clearer picture on is that social media tends to amplify whatever that young person is experiencing in real life. So for teenagers who have good, rich friendships, those often carry over to how they are interacting on social media and they're enhancing those relationships. For teenagers who feel isolated, their interactions on social media can make them feel worse. They can scroll and scroll and feel left out or they might engage in, um, you know, conflict online. But, you know, Dr. Murthy did such, you know, an incredible service to call our attention to loneliness and social isolation. And in the excellent new advisory that came out, one of the things that's pointed out is that the starkest decline of in-person activity was actually for people ages 15 to 24. Um, He reports a 70% drop over two decades in terms of in-person time spent by, you know, teenagers and young adults. And what about these other trends, the academic declines we're seeing? How do we, what are some solutions for that? Well, I think we shouldn't be shocked that having school be massively disrupted by a global pandemic is going to have an impact on academic functioning. So I think it's to be expected. I think what's key is to focus on talking about it in terms of delay as opposed to loss. And I think sometimes the loss narrative can be um, pretty grim, hard for kids to hear, and leave adults feeling helpless. Whereas if we talk about it in terms of delay and trying to shore up delays, I think that creates an opening for thinking about how we get kids back on track. Now, we think and talk so much about the impact of the pandemic for, you know, obvious reasons. But I wonder, you know, have these declines, are these really new? What's been going on with kids for the past five or ten years? If you look back further. Yeah, they're not new, actually. Um, The CDC has been tracking adolescent mental health for decades. And starting in about 2010, we were seeing rising rates of depression and anxiety. Now, unsurprisingly, that was accelerated by the pandemic. But it's not the case that these are all new findings or all new concerns. We've been worrying about teenagers for a while now. You know, we're seeing this data about Uh, young people experiencing spikes in anxiety and depression. And I can't help but wonder, is are those problems getting worse or are we just better at talking about them or is it some combination? We do try in the methodologies to account for, you know, how comfortable any given group of young people is with reporting how they're feeling. And because people do ask that question, is it just that kids talk about depression and anxiety more and so we're hearing about it more? And the methodologies we have really do try to control for that, which is to say, no, we really think it's worse. It's not just that kids are talking about it more. We do think that we're seeing higher rates of depression and anxiety. And we have things we can point to pre-pandemic. In 2018, the American Psychological Association put out a report on stress in America. And what they found was that Generation Z, so 15 to 21-year-olds roughly that they were looking at, reported that they far more than older people worry about things like climate change and gun violence and political polarization. So young people do have things that weigh on them that are new and also that weigh on them more, it seems, than they do on adults. As you look at the research, such as it exists, has this happened before? Have there been other tough periods in history farther back when American children and teens were especially struggling? I don't know that we have apples to apples data that we can look at to answer that question. 
But it's certainly, of course, we can say historically, I mean, teenagers have been through world wars, they've been through the Cold War. I think the thing that is different that we need to take seriously is that those of us who grew up in the Cold War, if we thought about it and were paying very close attention to the news, as much as we could think about it would be the morning paper and the evening news, mm -hmm. if we were even plugged into those. And I do think it is different for all of us, and especially teenagers, that there is a 24-hour ticker of bad news about what is happening in the world to which we all have constant access. Right. And so I think it's very hard to tease apart, is it that things are so much worse, or is it that it's impossible not to think about or know about what isn't working well in our society right now? What is at stake here for the long term? Well, what's at stake is that people are suffering. And human suffering under any condition is something that we should work to prevent and ease. But also what's at stake is that we want young people to thrive. And we want them to thrive both for themselves and also because they are the ones who are moving up into the workplace. They are moving up into adult roles in society. And so it really matters that we take seriously adolescent mental health, their need for connection, their need for meaning, their need to feel purposeful. And we create conditions that allow them to connect, to contribute, to be, you know, part of things that feel meaningful to them, because that both will help them to thrive in the short term. And it also helps to create the kind of adults that we want in our society. I know we've talked a lot about the concerns here. And I know as parents, we all want to address the concerns head on, help our kids. But I wonder, are there things when you talk to kids today, that things that you look out sort of over the landscape, are there things that give you hope? Well, yeah. I mean, I think teenagers are fascinating because they are just so vibrant and they're so growth oriented. And I think that's as true of teenagers today as it ever was. Another thing that gives me hope, though, just besides the nature of adolescents themselves, is that we have studied adolescent mental health for decades. And what we know is that the single most powerful force for adolescent mental health is strong relationships with caring adults. And I think we need to really lean into that, that we need to make sure that every teenager is connected to an adult who has their back and that that teenager feels, really gets, and cares for them. And so this is something we can all do. You don't have to be the parent. You can be the boss or the mentor or the neighbor or the uncle who is making sure that they have created a working and powerful connection with a teenager in your life. And, and I think that we can find our way through. Lisa Damore is a clinical psychologist and the author of The Emotional Lives of Teenagers, Raising Connected, Capable, and Compassionate Adolescents. Thank you so much for your time. You're welcome. If you or someone you know may be considering suicide or is in crisis, please call or text 988 to reach the Suicide and